leadership, but I want to start calling partnership. Because I believe if you're here and you attend here regularly, as the Bible says, you're a member of this body. Whether you really want to be or not, if you decide to worship here with us, God says you're a member of this body. And so when you, for a time, want to come and you want to be a part, we welcome you and we treat you like a member. But when you say, you know what, God's called me here, he's brought me here, and I want to use my gifts here, and I want to commit to this body, I want to be a partner here. Sort of like, you know, when you're dating and you decide, you know what, I like this person, we have some things in common, and uh, I like how they, they make me a better person, and I like what they do. And a lot of times we're a little blind to the flaws that they have, but we say, I want to be your partner. And I know in our world today, we just move in together and we partner together, but that's not God's design. God's design is a covenant. And you make a covenant before God to say, you're going to be my husband, you're going to be my wife, we're going to be partners for life until death parts us. And that's the kind of covenant that we enter into. Now you're like, what did we just sign up for? Uh, <laughs> But as long as God has called you to be here in this city, in this community, you want to be partners together. And so I'm going to invite the deacons, if they would, come to the front. And uh, I'm going to invite uh, Sean and Deb to come to the front. And we're going to just pray for them. We are grateful that God has brought them here. And the gifts, uh, yeah, you can be excited that uh, God has put in their lives. But we just want to pray a blessing over them and over their amazing soccer player and uh, family. And uh, just so awesome. So. So you can stretch out your hands and pray with us as we pray for them today. And so, Father, thank you for the way that you fit this body together. Your word says you fit us together perfectly, and you bring us together for such a time as this. And so, God, we are grateful for Sean, for Deb, for Josie, for Wyatt. God, for the, the lives, the gifts, the, the, the talents, the abilities. God, the relationships, the ways of thinking that you have in them that you've brought into this body. And I pray that you would continue to bless them. God, I pray that you continue to protect them. Pray that you continue to guide them. God, as they seek you and as they seek the, the place that you have for them in this body and in this city, God, that you just continue to develop the giftings that you've put in them. Continue to give them a teachable heart. God, that wants to continue to be molded by you and by your spirit. God, give them favor with both God and man in this community and in this body. I pray your blessing over them in every way today. God, thank you for them and the gift that they are to this body. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We uh, have just a small gift for you. It's just a small book that uh, some of the things that we've talked about in membership class, but it's in book form. And so that's a, a gift for you. So, yeah. All right. We've got uh, video announcements coming up. So if you want to turn your attention to the screen. Good morning, and welcome to Here and First. We would especially like to welcome our first-time guests. We would like to give you a $5 gift card to Dairy Queen just for being here. Thank you. House of Prayer is canceled for this week. However, be ready for next week. Our family ministries have already begun. There is something exciting for everyone. Please see your program for further details. We will be hosting a trunk or treat on October 31st from 5.30 to 8 p.m. If you are willing to provide a decorated trunk with treats, then please sign up on your Connect card. 
or you could help with a donation or help in some other way. Please see Pastor John for further information. October is Pastor Appreciation Month and we would like to bless our pastors as they are such a blessing to us. So how can you be creative in blessing them? In your program is a Connect card and we are asking that everyone fill out the requested information. You may place this in one of the offering baskets or give it to one of the greeters after the service. Now, grab your Bibles so that you can be prepared to hear what God has to say to us through His Word. All right. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our, our children, our kids for Kids Church, if they want to go ahead and meet their teachers out in the back. If you want to try to bring that up in the monitor a little bit. Um, we're having some problems in our house, so we're going to try this and see if it works. Um, generally, I'm pretty loud anyway, so... It, uh, it'll be all right. But if you've got your Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15, and just bear with Bob as he gets some adjustments made, and uh, we'll, we're going to plunge through. And so um, we've been in this series now for two weeks called The Prodigal God, and uh, we started it last week, and the, the, the idea of finding our place at the table has to do with the... the that's in Luke chapter 15 and the feast that the father gives for his family when his wayward son comes back home and uh, one of the sons gets to come to the table and the other one refuses to come to the table and so this idea of a table and the prodigal God that we've been studying in our small groups our huddles on Wednesday nights and on Sunday night and uh, it's been redefining sin it's been redefining what it means to be lost and last week especially we looked at the context of Luke chapter 15 15 because the, the Bible was written in a certain culture that many of us don't understand we don't uh, think the same way as that culture we don't understand the geography of that culture we don't understand the, the habits or the customs of that culture and so it's good for us to dive into that culture to understand what is being said and when we learned last week about the people around Jesus and some of the culture it helps us to understand why Jesus is telling this story and it helps us to understand the point that he's trying to make and last week we learned that there were two groups of people that were around Jesus when he told this story the first group were the tax collectors and the sinners and uh, those were the immoral people and so those are the people that don't go to church those are the people that live out in the world those are the people that are alcoholics and they're drug addicts and they're prostitutes and uh, they're just immoral people they're mean they swear whatever in your mind is an immoral person that's a tax collector and a sinner the other group are the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. And so who these people are, these are your church folk. These are the people that go to church on Sunday, they give in offerings, they serve in ministries, these are pastors, these are evangelist teachers, they're just, they're believers, they're Christians, if you will. And so those are the good guys, the moral people, and uh, they are the other group of people around Jesus. And the Pharisees could not understand, the good guys could not understand why Jesus would spend his time with bad people, with sinners. Because culturally in that day, when you ate at a table with sinners, you were basically approving of their behavior. And so the, the Pharisees are looking at this and thinking that in some way Jesus is approving of the way the Pharisees are behaving. But Jesus is not condoning their behavior, but he's not condemning them either. Jesus understands that every one of us needs a savior. In fact, in John chapter three, it says that God sent his son into the world not to judge us, 
Okay, in order to judge us, he didn't need to come because we were already guilty. He could have just judged us. And so if Jesus had come and just hung out with the good guys, he wouldn't have hung out with anyone because every one of us would have been judged. The law didn't make anyone righteous. And the Pharisees had a hard time with this. They couldn't understand it because they didn't realize they were just as guilty as the tax collectors and sinners, even though they had kept the law. The appearance of good can be deceiving. And because they kept the law and because they felt like they were moral and they were good, they felt like they were justified before God and the tax collectors and sinners were not. But Jesus came to redefine everything. And he wanted them to understand, like what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 64, we're all infected, all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, our goodness, our morality, they are nothing but filthy rags. That doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't be like our father. We should imitate him. We should do good things. But there are some of us that go to church and we, we do moral good things hoping that that in some way earns us credit with the father. That's what the Pharisees were like. And Jesus is trying to help them understand all of your best keeping of the law is like filthy rags. Jesus came to make us right before God. And because we are now right before God, he also gives us the power to act like God because he changes our nature from the inside out. And so Jesus came to invite both of these groups to the table to offer salvation to everyone because everyone needs salvation. And so to answer their criticism, Jesus tells these three stories in Luke chapter 15. We looked at two of the stories last week, the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And today we're going to look at the story in the weeks ahead, the lost sons. We learned last week that we can be lost because of our nature, because of how we were born, our sinful nature. That can make us lost. We can be lost because of our environment, because of what other people have done to us. We can be lost by our own choices. Our own stupidity can get us lost because we can do things apart from what God says is good and we can get ourselves lost. We can get lost by wandering away from God or we can get lost right at home in the house of God. And Jesus is telling these three stories and it climaxes with the story of the, the lost sons. But the last thing before we dig into that, I wanna remind you of is the joy in each of the seekers. We looked last week at Luke chapter 15, verse seven, and it says, in the same way there is more joy in heaven over the one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. It doesn't mean that God loves us less. It just means if we are righteous, not because of our good works, that's what the Pharisees would have thought, but because of what Christ has done, and there's one lost person who doesn't know about Christ who surrenders himself to him, there's more rejoicing in heaven because that person has come back into the kingdom of God. He's come back into relationship with God. He's not just on his way to heaven. He's now in relationship with God. See, the 99 righteous persons that don't need to repent, we're already in relationship with God. He's already communing with us and talking with us and fellowshipping with us, or at least he should be. And if he's not, it's not because he doesn't want to. 
And so that person comes back into the kingdom. And so as we look at this story of the two lost sons, what we commonly refer to as the prodigal son, but we've talked about that word prodigal does not mean wayward. We pray for prodigals in our Christian language. We say, Lord, bring the prodigals back home, meaning the people that were one time in church but strayed away. That's not what prodigal means. Prodigal means, by definition, to be extravagantly reckless, to be a spendthrift, or to have something or give something lavishly. So the prodigal son was reckless with his father's money. He was a spendthrift, so that's why he's referred to as the prodigal son. Had nothing to do with him being wayward. It was how he spent the father's money. But we believe that God is also a prodigal in the sense that God is a reckless spendthrift with his grace. And we're going to start looking at that today, and we'll look at it in the weeks ahead. But we're going to read this parable Starting in Luke chapter 15, verse number 11, to illustrate the point further, Jesus tells them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted, he prodigaled, all his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Now, remember, pigs are unclean animals, so Jesus is painting a picture here that the Pharisees are going to get. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So to the Pharisees, this guy is at rock bottom. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, while here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant so I can pay back what I've wasted. I do not want you to give me anything. You've already given me more than you should have. I want to pay it all back. I want to be your servant. How many of you know that's how some of us, I want to be a good person. God, I'm so sorry I've sinned. I'm going to be a good person. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Why does the father not let him finish that speech? Because that speech is pointless. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, which, by the way, a man in this culture would have never for any reason done, embraced him and kissed him. His son said, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. He repented. But his father said, Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. 
When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. So the older brother was so excited, he went in the house, and he joined the feast. Wouldn't it be great if that's how it ended? The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. So his father said, well, suit yourself. No, that's not what he does. Because there are some wayward sons that come back into the kingdom, and that's how they treat church folk. Well, suit yourself. But the father came out and begged him. See, it's easy for us to get upset with the Pharisees and to be hard on them. Um, But when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, uh, he was talking of them too, not just the tax collectors and sinners. He replied, the older brother, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. In all that time, you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, not my brother, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. So today I want to look at three things. I want to look at the request of the son. I want to look at the response of the father. And I want to look at what difference that makes for me and you in this room. The first thing I want us to look at is the request of this younger son. He basically, in my translation, says, I want my share of the estate now before you die. Those are his words. And in that culture, you have to understand, the eldest son got a double portion of the, what the others got in the inheritance. Girls, you got nothing. Okay, it was your job to grow up and get married so someone could take care of you. But the sons got the share of the estate, if you will. And so the oldest son, because there's two sons in this story, would get two-thirds of the father's inheritance. And the younger son would have gotten one-third of the father's inheritance. And so he comes to his father and he says, Father, I want my third because I want to leave. Now, for you and I, maybe this isn't such a big deal because when we look at this, we're thinking, well, you know, he wants his inheritance. He wants to go out and, you know, make a name for himself. And, you know, what, I mean, it would be okay in our culture for me to go to my father and say, Dad, hey, while you're still alive, why don't you cash in something because I want to start a business or I want to I do something. But in this culture, the people that are standing around Jesus are not like you and I. And the people that are standing there in that moment would have been stunned that a father, a son, a young man would make that request of his father. See, our society today so much lacks honor and respect so that when, when someone is disrespected, we really don't think about it all that much. Or if someone's disrespected and maybe we think they deserve it, we don't think much about it. But in this culture, the way that, the way that children today maybe talk to their parents with disrespect would never have been tolerated in this culture. In fact, by the law, if you spoke of your, your parents with disrespect, they had the right by the law to take you to the city gates and stone you. Now, I'm not advocating we go back to that. But I do think the way that we talk to our parents would change if there was fear of death. I'm just saying. Some of you know fear of, at least fear of dad, fear of the stick, fear of a switch. You know, we understand that. We don't understand that much in our culture today. 
But in this culture, and biblically, respect and honor are a high priority. And so what this son is, the equivalent of what he's saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Now I know none of us in this room, us good church folk, would ever think that that's how we would treat our Father in heaven. But we know that while we were his enemies, that's exactly how we treated him. The estate of the father now would never have been dispersed until after he died. And so those hearing this story would understand the disgrace that this young son is bringing on the family, on the father. They would understand the blow that this would be economically to the family because you don't you, you got to understand, it's not like he can go down to Dakota land or to American Bank and Trust and withdraw some money and give it to the son. Most of his wealth would have been in animals. It would have been in his property. And so in order to give his son one-third of his wealth, he's going to have to distribute or sell off something in order to make this request known. So he's literally going to have to strip himself, his family apart, to do that. Now these people are wondering, why would a son make that request? And in their mind, there's only two reasons that a son is going to make that request. One, he loves himself more than he loves his father. Or two, he loves money more than he loves his father. Either way, he loves what the father has more than, what, more than the father himself. See, as human beings, our hearts can easily become distorted by disordered loves. We look to things to provide a fulfillment that only God can provide. In some ways, we say that we have this God-shaped hole in the size of our, our heart, and we try to fill it with, like the prodigal son, prostitutes, pornography, drugs, alcohol, relationships. We just want someone to love us. We, we think that we can get that filled by something. If I just had a better job, if I just had more prestige, if I just had something... And so things easily can capture our heart and our passion more than God. And this young man had fallen in love with his father's stuff over his love for his father. In Genesis chapter 22, there's a story about Abraham, who in Sunday school this morning, we talked about Abraham and his great faith. But in Genesis chapter 22, there's a story where God asks Abraham to take his son Isaac onto Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Now, why on earth, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, would God ever ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, his child? I mean, if, if, we, if I today read that verse of scripture and that was it as a call to worship and sat down, I'm guessing if you were a guest here today, you would have probably walked out the door. Because that doesn't seem like a legitimate or logical thing to ask. But see, what God knows is that Abraham somehow had put Isaac over God on the throne of his heart. See, Abraham, it, it was easy to do because Abraham was about 100 years old when Isaac was born and Abraham had prayed and believed God for a long time for this son. So this son was an answer to prayer. And so it was easy to take that son and to put him on the throne of his heart. Most scholars believe that Abraham now had fallen more in love with the blessing from God than he was with the blesser himself. That Abraham's passion and relationship with God had begun to wane and he was beginning to put more stock in Isaac. I don't know if you've ever been a first-time parent, 
But first-time parents listen for their children to breathe at night. They walk in the room and they put their ear down and they're nervous. And, they're, you know, when Kedrick was born, he spent a lot of weeks down in the NICU down in at Sanford. And so when we brought him home, there was a lot of anxiety. I mean, they even put us in a room with nurses outside the first night so that we could get used to it. One night? One night supposed to make me feel good? I promise you, I used to be a sound sleeper. I could sleep through anything. The day he came home from the hospital, everything changed and still hasn't gone back. I pray for the day when I can be a sound sleeper again. But I wake up at everything. And there were times I remember laying there listening on the monitor for the breathing. And if I didn't hear it, I would go into the room and I would listen. And if I waited and waited and waited and waited... For a promise like this from God, I can imagine it would be easy to take that thing and put it on the throne of my heart where it would get all my attention. And yet, yet I trusted God to give me the son, but somehow I didn't trust God to keep the son. And so, in order to reorient Abraham's heart, God asks him to put his son on the altar. Because God understands that when we put other things on the altar of our lives, he understands that all it leads to is death. It leads to family problems. It leads to problems in our homes. It leads to problems in our society. It tears our lives apart. God did not want Isaac. He wanted Abraham's heart. And that's why God didn't let him go through with it. He took him right up to the point and said, Abraham, I wanted him to know that I had your heart and he provided a ram for the sacrifice and so the question that you and I need to wrestle with today is has something taken the place of God on the throne of our hearts are there misordered loves in our lives that we're using to try to give us meaning that only God can give See, the younger son may have lived at home for a time with his father, but he did not love his father. He ultimately loved his father's things. He did not think that his father and the relationship with his father was the end. He thought it was the means to the end. He knew that this request would be a knife in his father's chest, but he apparently did not care. But this story has two sons. One of them left home, squandered his father's estate on an immoral lifestyle, and the other that we talked about last week was the religious son who never did anything wrong. When we look at them, they seem very different on the outside. But as we go through the weeks ahead, we're gonna see that these sons are actually very much so the same. One of them was trying to find fulfillment through self-gratification. He took his father's money and he spent it on everything he thought would satisfy him. Apparently, not wanting to be under the thumb of his father anymore, he thought he could make better decisions than the father, and so he took his father's money and he made his own choices. And when that didn't work out, he came back to the father. The other son was a very religious son, and in his own words, he says, Father, I've never done anything wrong. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've followed all of your commands. The problem is he didn't follow the Father's commands because he loved the Father. He also followed the Father's commands because he saw them as a means to an end. 
It's telling because the very next statement that the son makes is, you've never thrown a party like this for me. You've never thrown a party like this for me. He didn't love the father for who he was. He loved the father for what he could do with him or for him. Oftentimes, I watch as believers go through difficulties because all of us have times when things go awry in our lives, where the doctor says words like cancer or God, or the, our spouse uses words like divorce, or we get betrayed by a close friend, or we, we think that we've kind of gotten the short end of the stick. Maybe at work you got fired and it, you shouldn't have been let go. You maybe had more standing with the company than someone else, or you were fired in a way that wasn't appropriate. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And oftentimes in those moments, I watch as Christians become angry with the Father. In much the same way, we say, I don't understand. I've gone to church. I've served you faithfully. And this is how you treat me. Just like the elder brother, we get a picture of our hearts and our motivation for why we're serving God in the first place. See, it's easy for us to think that when I get fired unjustly or I get betrayed or something bad happens to me, that I just act out of character in that moment and I never really would think that in my heart. But what the scripture teaches us, it's actually in that moment of pressure, it reveals why we're serving God in the first place. And if we're, we're gonna cry out to him, how dare you treat me this way, we're not really in it for a relationship with the Father, we're in it for what he can provide for us whether that's some blessing here on earth or whether it's just heaven someday. And it's very telling to us. Our question, second question for the day is, what's our motivation for serving God? Do we serve him out of relationship, out of love, or do we serve him because of what he can provide for us? Because we feel like the eternity that he offers through Jesus is better than the eternity offered without him. And I promise you, in these moments of life, it will reveal the motivation of our hearts. And it doesn't reveal the motivation of our hearts so that we can uh, feel bad about ourselves. It's so that we can repent of where our hearts have been all along. The older son humiliates his father in much the same way that the younger did because he refuses to go in. The father throws a party with a fattened calf that would have been a once in a lifetime party, celebration. And by not attending that celebration, he puts the same amount of shame and condemnation on the father that the younger did with his request from the father. See, he objects to the expense that the father has spent to lavish his love upon his son because he sees himself as worthy and the younger son as unworthy. He's obeyed the father, not because he loves his father, but because what his father can provide for him. You see, the request of the son sounds crazy to these people, but the response of the father is even crazier. When the people in this story have heard the, the son's request and they're astounded that a son would ever do that, they knew in their minds what would happen next. The father is gonna come in 
And he's going to judge the son. He's going to be angry. He's going to beat the son so the son understands his place in the family. And he's going to bring that son into alignment. Because again, in that culture, if your son disrespects you or dishonors you, you beat them not because you're just angry with them, but because they need to understand their place. And rebellion in the heart of a child becomes very infectious. And that's why God tells us to take rebellious children in the law and stone them because he understands rebellion in the heart can become very infectious to others. And so the people understand this is what's about to happen, that he's going to take his son and he's going to beat him. He's going to put him out of his family, but they never would have expected the father to respond the way the father responds. They never would have expected the father to divide his property between his sons. Without an argument, without a word, he gave the son what he asked for. He literally tore his own life apart, his reputation, his identity, his wealth, to give his son what he requested. Everyone would have thought the father was foolish to honor that request. But the father in the story took the shame, he took the agony, he took the pain, and he didn't take revenge or inflict pain upon his son. And the father did it in the story to keep the door open to relationship. If the father had treated his younger son with disdain and sent him away, the younger son never would have returned. But by giving him what he asked for, he left the door open for the son to come back. He was willing to suffer humiliation for the sin of this child so that someday the child would come back home. I hope that you and I see and understand in this story the depths of the love of God for us. The shame, the guilt, the ridicule that he allowed himself to see. The reason that Jesus is telling this story is he wants it to penetrate our hearts Not just for the younger brother, but for those of us that fall into the category of the elder brother. See, historically, this request and this response would have seemed ridiculous to them, but maybe the question is, why does it matter to us? Whether you're in this room today and you're the irreligious, free-willing, immoral son, or you're the religious, moral, elder brother type, it doesn't matter. What the point of the story today is, is that all of us have a problem with disordered loves or idols of the heart. I want you to imagine a wife who has a husband. That husband spends hours talking with another woman about his problems, personal problems, problems in his relationship with his wife, He goes traveling with her. He goes on trips with her. They talk all the time. He thinks about her constantly. And one day his wife comes to him and confronts him on this issue. And the the husband says, what's the problem? I married you, didn't I? I pay the bills, don't I? Somebody asks me and I tell them, you're my wife. I fulfill all of my obligations to you. I don't understand what's the problem. The wife would respond as she should, yes, you're legally bound to me, but someone else has your heart. See, it's easy to get in an internet chat room and start sharing secrets with someone and think, you know, I'm just divulging information that I should be talking about with my spouse, and it's easy to lose our heart before we ever get into bed with someone. Adultery doesn't start when 
when we have a sexual encounter. Adultery starts when we give up our hearts. Now I want you to imagine there's a Christian. And that Christian says he serves God and loves God with all of his heart. But this Christian devotes his time and his energy to some other aim. His relationship with God is more of a drudgery and an obligation than it is a passion. And suppose the Holy Spirit comes to that person and begins to convict them. And that Christian responds, God, what's the problem? I said the sinner's prayer. I go to church occasionally. I give in the offering occasionally. I am even in ministries. I know I'm not perfect, but God, I'm better than I used to be. Just leave me alone. And too many elder brothers in the church treat their relationship with God that way. God won't leave that person alone because he knows that when they call themselves a Christ follower, it's really just a label, and their heart is actually captured by other things. See, it's possible to sit in a church pew every week of your life and not be in a relationship with a father. You're sitting in a pew because you want to be a good moral person hoping that that's going to convince God to love you more or treat you better or keep you from getting cancer or keep your family safe or get you into heaven someday. And you're not there because you want a relationship with the Father who took your shame and your guilt. See, many of us in this room today don't fall in the category of younger brother. We fall into the category of elder brother. We obey all of the rules, but our real heart and our real passion is something else. And it happens easily and very subtly. So I want us to ask ourselves the question today, has an Isaac taken over God's place on our hearts? I mean, something that is a good thing, something maybe that was an answer to prayer, something that, that maybe God brought into our lives. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's our children. Maybe it's peer acceptance. Maybe it's our reputation. Maybe it's our religious service or our ministry. Maybe it's the glory years of the past. Sometimes we just want to relive the glory years. We're not interested in serving God in the here and now and loving the Father and bringing the wayward sons back. We're more interested in getting the feeling that we used to have when the glory of God was present. We like worship services not because we want to give glory and honor to the God who stepped in and took our shame and our guilt. We want a worship service for how it makes us feel. And we fight and we get angry over things in the house. And it's no longer enough for just to be in relationship with the Father. See, we can memorize scripture, we can lift our hands, we can operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We can sing about the love of God and not fully understand it. The litmus test for the understanding of the love of God is how much of it flows out of our lives to our younger brothers, to our younger sisters. And so the question isn't, who will I allow to sit at the table with me? It's the question is, who won't I allow to sit at the table with me? Who won't 
I walk in relationship with? Who am I upset that God is recklessly displaying grace towards them? God, do you know how they treated me? Do you know how they act? Do you know them? Why do they get to have all your blessing? Why don't you punish them? Why am I the one suffering? Why am I the one dealing with debt? Why am I the one that's physically in pain? Why not them? See, we're not in it for our relationship with our Father. We're in it for what he can provide for us. I promise you it's easy for us to fall into that trap. I know that in my life I've fallen into that trap. I feel at times like I'm the wayward son who thinks I know better than God and wants to just run off and do things on my own and I've been in that place in my life but I've also been the elder brother that thinks I know better than God and thinks I know better how he can dole out his grace and mercy. I've been one that wants to indulge in self-gratification and I've been one that wants to indulge in self-righteousness. The misordered loves of the younger son are easier to see. They're the idols of addiction, they're the idols of drug or substance abuse, they're relationships that become promiscuous, they're passions that the word of God completely calls immoral and most of us would never argue that that person is away from God. But the idols in the heart of the elder brother are far more dangerous because they're hidden behind Christian service and Christian verbiage. And sometimes we don't see them unless we allow the Holy Spirit to strip away the pride from our hearts. They're hidden because we go to church and we pay our tithe. They're hidden because we're good moral people. But every day in the heart of good people who come to church every Sunday, the reality is something in our lives can steal our hearts away from God and it can look good. It can look religious. We can continue on with our religious service, but that's no longer because it's our pleasure to serve our Father, it's because it's now an obligation. And so when serving God becomes a duty for us, when we've lost the sense of freshness or joy, and there's no purpose or passion in our walk with God, it's time for us to recognize the elder brother syndrome of our hearts and repent. It's time to come before the Father and say, Father, I've cared more about your stuff. I've cared more about my ticket to heaven than the fact that I today get to walk in relationship with you. And yeah, I may be suffering a a physical ailment. I may be suffering because of uh, financial problems. I may have been betrayed by those closest to me, but I have you and you are more than enough. What the father did in the story is obviously what God has done for you and I. He could have come into the world in wrath because you and I as human beings have blown it, we continue to blow it, and even after we come to faith, we realize that we've blown it. We talked about in Sunday school this morning that just because the scripture says Abraham never wavered in his faith, it's not that he's never blown it. He blew it. There was Ishmael. He blew it. He put Isaac on his heart as an idol. But he kept coming back to the promise of God. He wasn't too proud to admit that God knew better than him. God could have came in with judgment, but instead he came with grace. He came to bear our judgment. He came to die so that we could live. And his life, like the father's estate, was torn apart. And he took the shame so that you and I could come back home anytime we choose. Whether we're in the house or we're the wayward son, he's left the door open for us to come back to the table. 
And so you may be in this room like the son who's wandered away in self-gratification, or you may be the good son who has tediously obeyed him. But I promise you today, the Lord is making a place at the table for every one of us. I want you, as we prepare to close the service today, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads, close your eyes. In just a moment, I'm going to set the communion elements out on this table today. And I don't ask you to close your eyes because it's a spiritual thing. I don't ask you not to look around because it's, you know, how we have to talk to God. I do it because I don't want you to be distracted. I do it because I want you to take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart through what he's spoken to us today through his word. And this morning, maybe it's time for us to allow God to steal our hearts again. Maybe you're in this room and you're the younger brother who's been chasing other things. And maybe you look good on the outside, but you're you're chasing after stuff to fulfill you. You're chasing after a career. You're chasing after accomplishments. You're chasing after a reputation. You're chasing after something to make you feel satisfied. If only I had this. And just like the younger brother, you're chasing after things that are never gonna satisfy you. Maybe you're in this room today and you're the elder brother and you've let other things take God's place in your heart. In the middle of going to church, in the middle of living a moral life, you have still kicked God off the throne of your hearts. And today, maybe it's time to let him steal back our hearts from the idols that are pulling our allegiance away from him. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Has something stolen your heart? Whether it's something obvious and immoral, or whether it's something religious. Has serving God become more of a duty to you, more of an obligation to you, than something that's a joy for you? Do you find yourself angry that God seems to dole out his grace on someone else a little more lavishly than he doles it out upon you? Are you serving him because of what he can do for you, more so than who he is. And so in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to make a dif- difficult decision and I'm gonna ask you to lift a hand and say, you know what, that's, that's me. And I'm not doing it today because I wanna know who you are because I promise you my hand is the first to go up because I know how easy it is to serve God in ministry and to start thinking that you're doing everything right and to become self-righteous in your attitudes. I know how easy it is And even if I'm not in that place today, I know that I could very well end up in that place tomorrow. So if you're in this room, and first, you're the younger brother. You're away from God. You know that you're in sin. You're away from Him. You're trying to fill your life with things that are never going to satisfy. You're the younger son. And you say, today, I want to be in right relationship with God. I want to come back to him. I'm not going to do it my way. 
I'm going to surrender, and I want to do it his way. Today, I want to find my place at the table. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand and say, today I'm going to come back to the table. I'm the younger brother. I'm in sin. I'm away from God, and I'm going to come back to him. Anyone else? Thank you for your honesty. You can put your hand down. I'm assuming then if you're not a younger brother, the rest of us in this room either are elder brothers or we have the potential to become elder brothers. It's easy in the middle of going to church and religious activity and religious duty and service to fall into that trap of self-righteousness and to start thinking we've earned our place at the table and that really we're not as bad as the people outside of this building today. They're the reason this, the country's in the shape it's in, not me. It's easy for our hearts to get hardened and then God becomes a means to an end instead of the end itself. It's easy to get hung up on the religious trappings and not be after the heart of our Father. And so I know that all of us in this room that have come into relationship with God have the potential. And at the end of this service, I want us each to to partake of these communion elements and I want us to, to seal in our hearts this message and this word today. But I'm not talking to just the potential today. If you're in this room and you say, you know what, the Holy Spirit has come, he's put his finger on something, and I know it's clear, I know that I'm living life as the elder brother, and the word of God has made it clear, the Holy Spirit has made it clear, and today I just wanna, I wanna acknowledge before God that I need to repent. I'm an elder brother. And I want to come back to the table, not just with my father, but with my brother. So if that's you, would you slip up your hand and say, that's me. Pray for me today. I want to acknowledge I'm an elder brother. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? All across this room, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. this is how we're going to close this service today. Those of you that lifted your hand as elder brothers today, can I tell you, I know that the scripture says that there's uh, more rejoicing over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous, but let me tell you, heaven rejoices when we recognize the pride and the elder brother spirit in our hearts, because the, the Bible clearly says that it's pride that distances us from God. But it's humility that draws him near. And God is not longing for you to come to heaven. He's longing for you to walk in relationship with him today. I mean, he knows that heaven is the end of the road, but he wants that relationship with you. And so as we close this service today, if you, if you raised your hand and said, today I'm coming back to the Father, I'm the wayward son.
In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come as I close in prayer, and you're going to take communion element. And I want you to go to one of the members of our prayer team, and I want you to acknowledge to them, say, hey, I want you to, I'm coming back. I'm a wayward son, and I'm repenting, and I'm coming back, and I want to be in relationship with the Father. They're going to lead you in a prayer of salvation, and they're going to encourage you, and they've got some materials for you. And we're going to, we want to celebrate with you for that. But those of us that were elder brothers today, we're going to come and we're going to come around this table. We're going to take the elements. And if you have a need or you want someone to agree in prayer with you, feel free to use the prayer team that's here. I will be here. But if you just want to spend some time around this altar or in your seat, but I encourage you to spend some time with your father. And for those of you that maybe didn't raise your hand today, You're potentially an elder brother. The danger is always there to guard our hearts. If you remember the story that Jesus told, it wasn't a story, it was a letter in Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Ephesus. And he said how proud he was of that church because of their service, because of their good deeds, because of all of the things that they were doing. But the one thing he held against them was that they had lost their first love. The danger's always there to keep going through the religious routine and to lose the heart and passion for him. And so the potential elder brothers in this room, all of us are invited to this table today. We're not gonna partake of communion as a group, but I want you with these elements, with your spouse, by yourself, with a friend, with a member of the prayer team, however you feel led to do that. Take those elements. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And spend just a few moments with your Father before you dismiss yourself today. So when you're finished today and you're ready to be dismissed, please do it quietly so that those that are still praying or being prayed for can continue to receive ministry or can continue to spend that time with their father. Just save all of your visiting for the the foyer area and let that be that, that time out there. And so, Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that while we were your enemies, you died for us. You gave your life for us. You demonstrated how much you love us. You took our shame, our guilt, our punishment, You took everything upon yourself so that we could be in relationship with you. Holy Spirit, as we come around this table today, I ask that you take the word and that you'd seal it in our hearts today. That you'd help us to know how wide and how long and how high and how deep your love is for us. That you would transform us today by the power of your love that you'd strip away pride, that you'd strip away self-righteousness, that you'd strip away self-sufficiency, that you'd expose every idol that we've put in the center of our hearts. Holy Spirit, bring us to the table together today. Bring us into relationship with our Father, fresh and new today. Now, God, I pray your blessing over this congregation today. I ask that you would bless them, that you would keep them, 
that you'd cause your face to shine on them, that you'd be gracious to them, that you'd lift up your countenance upon them, and that you'd give them peace. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. These elements are available, and so as you want, please come and receive them. Prayer team, if you'd come to the front and uh, be ready to minister, and uh, when you're ready to be dismissed, just go ahead and do that quietly.